Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So we didn't really have a plan for tonight's episode, which we don't always have a plan. But we thought this week, this one is a 14 event, which always requires a little bit of digging. So we got together and went to a bar that we like over near Force House called Bigfoot Lodge. And what more aptly named place than Bigfoot Lodge to discuss this type of material? That's right. It's a place we've been to before. We actually tried to go there the day that we wanted to name the show. And we'd gotten there too early or something. It was closed. And we wound up over at The Roost, which was yeah. an equally cool. Oh, yes. For, for different there. reasons. That's like a... It's a a bar out of the past, pristine and transported in time, but a different vibe, totally. We tried to go to Bigfoot Lodge, and it just wasn't open. We were there too early, and uh, so we went to uh, the roost. But this time, we got there on (laughs) time. At the right time, (laughs) Uh, but before the, the, the evening rush. Yeah, exactly. Well, before the evening rush, you were the only per- – you and two other people were inside. <laughs> there was a few others in the, inside. <laughs> Not including the bartender. Yeah, people yeah. who got off work early or didn't have to work that day, like myself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I – and I actually headed over there to, to meet Forrest. He got there about 10 minutes before me, and as I was walking up to Bigfoot Lodge, there was a couple of guys standing out. And there's a little alcove where you can sort of have a cigarette and look at people on the sidewalk that yeah, sticks vestibule. out a few inches. Sure. Yeah. And one of them sees my hat, which I've been wearing a, an Astonishing Legends hat for about a month now, which is when we got them. And to our listeners who are interested in them, we haven't gotten the store online yet, but it is – I promise you it's imminent. We had to form our little LLC and get our store set up, and it's coming. If they ask us directly, can if, are we allowed to – are Not we yet. able to – Okay, I so can't th- handle yeah, it yet. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, aside from well, – I would, aside, I would bail it to them, but – Aside take. from Colton who like broke it, hacked in somehow. Yeah, that, 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 uh, that was special effort on his part. Yeah, yeah, but we will have it up soon enough, I promise. We're, we're, we're very close. The store's actually already built. It's just not actually deployed and we have to take pictures of the merchandise. So anyway, I'm walking up to Bigfoot Lodge. I'm wearing my hat and this guy is standing out there and he goes – Hey, is that is that an astonishing mysteries hat? And I'm like, in in a few milliseconds, I was like, I went from elated to oh, he thinks it's something it's else. A, a, a much cooler and better podcast than ours that yeah. we'll now have to cop to not being or some yeah. completely unrelated product with an identical logo. <laughs> right? That somehow I overlooked in my trademark. Oh, search. that would be that would be so much worse. It's oh, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, we just made all these hats and yeah. shirts. <laughs> we have to. No, see, them. he must have seen the like the look of concern on my face because the very next thing he said was, "No, astonishing legends, astonishing." Legends, yeah. the podcast. And I said, yeah, yeah, actually, it is an astonishing legend. He was like, that's a great podcast. And without thinking about it, I went, thank you. And yeah. he said, wait, wait, is it your show? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and he was like, oh, my God, I love the show. You know, I'm going to – and I was like, well, I'm actually just meeting my partner here so we can talk about next yeah. week's episode. And he's like, oh, great. I'm going to come over and talk to you guys. And I was like, wow, I couldn't believe it. So I walk inside. Forrest is already in there. Drinking beer in a dark corner, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was. Hey, it's all, all the corners are dark. So, yeah, but, I, but I picked one that was like in between the speakers. The other great thing is they play a lot of Pixies songs, yeah. which I'm a huge fan of. He had so, his Pixie shirt uh, on. Yeah, yeah, great. You know, great service, uh, great, great atmosphere. It was dark um, enough that I asked yeah. him to move to another table so we could see <laughs> our notes. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, a little, little closer to the, the, the front. But initially, I didn't believe him. He said, hey, somebody recognized our podcast from the hat. I said, no way. Come on, you're just quit putting me on. You know, this podcast goes globally, and that's just the nature of now of digital media. Yeah. It's accessible all over the world. We're, I, don't, I haven't looked lately, yeah. but last I checked, we were in like 155 countries. Yeah, already. which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, but ironically... My neighborhood is the last place I would expect somebody, a, a listener, to to make themselves known. Yes. Well, it turns out that this guy is actually a director. He directs documentaries. He's done commercial work. And he was there with his friend who is a director of photography. And they were meeting there for the evening, and eventually they were joined by his girlfriend. So we had uh, Sam Macon, who was a director, and his girlfriend, Stacy, and then uh, his director of photography, Travis. Travis, yeah. yeah. And they wound up coming over to the table, and we talked to them for a good while, and it, just great guys. It was really nice to meet them. It was it was nice to know, by the way, <laughs> I'm often wondered how listeners are finding us, because it's not yeah. like we have an ad agency behind us and a huge budget, or it's like, how how did you discover us and so I, like, so I said to Sam I was like How, if you don't mind my asking you know and he's like oh yeah you guys were recommended by a friend of ours who can't sleep yeah <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like oh well uh, no there's two you took it the wrong no, way there's two ways to look at it either, it, either yeah. it, it puts me to sleep yes. or I'm up anyway I might as well be listening to something uh, you know kind of cool and creepy yes and yeah. by the way if you're out there I, I honestly can't remember your name the person who can't sleep but uh, I hope you're I hope you're still listening yeah, yeah. and or falling asleep, whichever is better for you. But thanks for recommending us. That's <laughs> yes. what we really like is Absolutely. that, it, hey, if, if there's people that you think might be into this, please turn them on to it. You know, yes. spread the word if you, if you will. And to that end, we really enjoy interacting with our listeners. Keep in touch with us. Reach out to us whatever way you can. In fact, tonight's show was a recommendation of a listener. And unfortunately, we've looked everywhere across all our platforms and I can't find the comment, but there was somebody who said, you guys should do a show on Spring Hill Jack. I think, it, you know what, I think it may have been in the iTunes comments, perhaps. But well, I don't like to go there. I know. Well, They're good. Not, 99% of them are good. I just, to, the, the yeah. bad ones bum me out. I know. That's, <laughs> uh, you're very sensitive to that. Uh, yeah. I find them humorous and yeah. uh, sometimes informative. Yeah. But the point is... Somebody said, hey, why don't you do a show on Spring Hill Jack? And if you're out there, mystery person who suggested Spring Hill Jack, and you're still listening, <laughs> drop us a note. We'll give you a shout out on a future episode. Either way, here we go with Spring Hill Jack. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. He also has spring-heeled or india-rubber-soled boots, for no man living could leap so lightly, and, I might say, fly across the ground in the manner he did last night. G.H.R. Davidson, Greater London Citizen, 1872. All right, so we got a great show for you tonight, but this this takes place kind of a long time ago. So we thought one of the best things to do right now would be to put you in the frame of mind of the era. So we're going to read to you an excerpt from a newspaper article from a witness who actually encountered Spring-Heeled Jack. Forrest? At about a quarter to nine o'clock, she heard a violent ringing at the gate at the front of the house. And on going to the door to see what was the matter, she saw a man standing outside, of whom she inquired what was the matter and requested he would not ring so loud. The person instantly replied that he was a policeman and said, For God's sake, bring me a light, for we have caught Spring-Heeled Jack here in the lane. She returned into the house and brought a candle and handed it to the person, who appeared enveloped in a long cloak. 
and whom she at first really believed to be a policeman. The instant she had done so, however, he threw off his outer garment and, applying the lighted candle to his breast, presented a most hideous and frightful appearance, and vomited forth a quantity of blue and white flames from his mouth, and his eyes resembled red balls of fire. From the hasty glance which her fright enabled her to get of this person, she observed that he wore a large helmet, and his dress, which appeared to fit him very tight, seemed to her to resemble white oil skin. Without uttering a sentence, he darted at her, and catching her partly by her dress and the back part of her neck, placed her head under one of his arms, and commenced tearing her gown with his claws, which she was certain were of some metallic substance. She screamed out as loud as she could for assistance, and by considerable exertion got away from him, and ran towards the house to get in. Her assailant, however, followed her, and caught her on the steps leading to the half-door, where he again used considerable violence, tore her neck and arms with his claws, as well as a quantity of hair from her head. But she was at length rescued from his grasp by one of her sisters. Miss Alsop added that she had suffered considerably all night from the shock she had sustained, and was then in extreme pain, both from the injury done to her arm and the wounds and scratches inflicted by the miscreant about her shoulders and neck with his claws or hands. All right, so that excerpt is from the Times, a London paper. It was in their February 22nd issue of 1838. Now, we cannot tell you that we dug that up. In fact, we can't even tell you that we dug up the paper that it was in. A friend of the show, a friend of Force, actually, his name is John Garris. We want to give him a shout-out for sending us the document that we found that in, as well as a lot of the information we're going to be sharing with you guys tonight. The original document was written by Mike Dash, who is a noted New York Times bestselling author and an expert on 14 events. In fact, he was an editor at 14 Times for 20 years, and is still working today. He lives in London. But he had to do a great deal of research to put that paper together. He was looking through old newspapers in the UK, and he had other researchers who were on his behalf were going to the Library of Congress and looking things up for him. So we have a link to the entire document, which is available for free on our website. And if the Spring Hill Jack is your thing, and the Wikipedia page does not satisfy you. Let me tell you what. This is like a 63-page document. It is cross-referenced and thoroughly researched. And after you read it, you're going to feel like you were there, honestly. It's, it's a really amazing piece of work. So it's one of my favorite stories. But before we get a little bit further, I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who know what Fortean means. But there's some people that probably don't. Yes, Charles Hoy Fort, who is an American writer and researcher. And he collected any kind of story that was strange or interesting about natural phenomenon or anything anomalous that he would come across. And he amassed a giant card collection, I think with over 30,000 entries, of just things like, you know, raining frogs from the sky or strange natural happenings. And it really kind of represents more along the lines of the, the stories that we cover in the breadth of our subject matter, and that it's not just paranormal or it's not just, you know, one thing or the other. It's anything that he comes across that just didn't make sense. Yes. So it's something that you'll hear come up with our show. We'll be using that term again in the future, and we're not going to explain who Charles Ford is every time. But if you hear us say 14 or 14 events, that's who we're talking about, and it is a whole discipline of information. And there's 14 times, there's 14 websites, there's all kinds of places. If you like our subject matter, if you start digging around, all you got to do is Google the word 14, F-O-R-T-E-A-N, and you're going to find a whole lot of things that we love to talk about and we'll be talking about on the show going forward. Anyway, moving on. So getting back to the Spring Hill Jack, this is technically pretty much an urban legend. Well, it has a lot of the elements of your classic urban legend. It, uh, but there is a difference, I guess, in your opinion. Well, I think it has some 
of the classical elements in that it the story grows. It's there's some exaggerations. It's the telephone game. It's fairly consistent, though, along its lines, and it's spread out over many years. It, it starts out – this is the thing. This may be what I think you're trying to say. Don't let me put words in your mouth. But it starts out verifiable, and then as time goes by, it becomes less and less verifiable. Yeah, that's part of it. The other thing that I was thinking of is that you know you have the vanishing hitchhiker, and you know that story. Somebody picks up a, a girl wandering along the road. Uh, they get to a certain distance. They turn around. She's not there. We we have this exact story in North Carolina. There's a story that in the folklore there, which has a rich tradition, oral history of storytelling and that sort of thing. But even in the ghost story books in North Carolina, you'll always find the lonely apparition, oh, which yeah. is a girl who stands under a bridge. You pull over to pick her up. And she tells you where she lives. You take her home. You pull in the driveway. You go around to let her out of the car, and she's not there. And it's like, what happened? You go to the front porch. <laughs> someone comes to the porch and says, oh, yes, and my daughter, she, she died 15 years ago in a car crash on her way to the prom or whatever. That's always the punchline. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and their yeah. stories are all over the country. And by the way, oh. I have been to that bridge because it's Ooh. actually outside of uh, Jamestown, North Carolina, between Greensboro and High Point. It's a very small you Very old area. You didn't see anything, did you? Well, this is the funny thing. They moved that bridge about 25 yards. The road, they, excuse me, they moved yeah. the road over by about 25 yards. So the original bridge is, you can't get to it anymore. So what happens is there's, you have to climb through a lot of, a lot of different kudzu and all the kudzu, also a problem in North Carolina, right. <laughs> yeah. to get to the old bridge. And when you get there, there's like, pentagrams painted on the wall. And, but the craziest thing that I saw, yeah. and I mean, this was back when I was in college, and maybe it's been fixed since then. You can actually see the old bridge from the road. When you drive by, you see it. Wow. Over. There was a like, big giant cross with shackles. And that was when I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah. you, I'm getting out. You don't want to end up as somebody's weekend hobby. Yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> well, so I left. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was probably the smart thing to do. But to your point, that's a story that is common all over the United States. It's a little, least. yeah, it's yeah. a little bit, the kind of the point I'm making is that. Uh, but I don't know, as you said, I don't know anyone that it happened to personally. Yeah, that's kind of part of my point. What's possible? What's not possible when you hear these stories? Can you go talk to the person or is that never going to happen? The two urban legends. The family that goes down to, to Mexico for a vacation sees a, uh, a little, a cute little chihuahua with a mange, brings it back, and it turns out it's a giant rat. Yeah. Now that, to me, that's possible. You know, <laughs> you don't know. It's like, yeah, it's a really ugly dog, but you bring it back and it's not a Chinese crested, it's a real rat. Now, the, the other urban legend is the person that wakes up in a bathtub full of ice and their kidney is missing. Right. Now, if you had passed out in a bathtub full of ice overnight, you're probably going to die of hypothermia. Yeah. And you never find the... Who has that happened to? You know, I'm sure people have sold their kidneys or tried to in a Motel 6 or something, you know, and, and it didn't work out. But that's... My point is that you can never get to that person to ask them because they really don't exist. So those are the differentiations I make between those kind of stories and and the ones that are the vanishing hitchhiker well that can't be proven that's a but that's a ghost story right now i know a couple of people that the reverse of that happened to where they were the hitchhikers and the car vanished oh that's right now that's see right. again now that's something that that's and these are people you actually know although between the two of them one of them doesn't remember it, right? Yeah, and the that's going to be that's going to be an upcoming interview yeah, uh, because I know that person, and he's a great storyteller. He's a writer, you know. In, in, in his part time, we work in the kind of the same area, and that story has always fascinated me because it is the opposite of the vanishing hitchhiker, right? Uh, it's the vanishing car, the vanishing car. <laughs> Not to give too much away, but basically, yeah. it was something that was it was impossible to happen yeah. to them. Yeah. And the other thing I like is that it wasn't somebody that they picked up in the car; they were in the car. 
Right. Okay. So uh, in terms of Spring-Heeled Jack, and it's either Spring-Heeled Jack or Spring-Heeled Jack. Either one I think is okay. Yeah. I mean, well, this is the thing about him. One of the things that was consistent in the early sightings was that he had a superhuman ability to jump. Yes. Really, really high. Like <laughs> over buildings, rooftop to rooftop, over coaches. Yeah. That were like with a, and, and One of the first stories, uh, oh, he jumps over a nine-foot-tall wall. Yes. And, you know, people know what the, how tall the wall is. Later on, stories of the guy climbing down walls. Yeah. And you know what? Let's get to some of these cases yeah. because I want people to understand what we're talking about. So Spring Hill Jack, yes, there's a Wikipedia page on it. You can look it up pretty easily. The bottom line is this. The first appearance was – or the first documented appearance was in 1837 when a guy came to the door of this young woman's house who lived there with her sisters and her dad. And he came to the door and was ringing the door frantically as Forrest described earlier. And he said, the police have found Spring Hill Jack. She comes out. He attacks her. Her sister has to save her. Her hair gets pulled out. They call the cops. There were some witnesses who heard the screaming along the way to go help whatever was happening. They encountered a tall man in a cloak. Yeah. Supposedly. That was Jane Alsop? Yeah, that was yeah. Jane Alsop. They encountered right. a tall man in a cloak who said, the police are needed at the Alsop residence. And later, the investigators were like, I think you talked to spring Jack there. You know? so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the other thing that, that Polly said was that he breathed blue and white fire into her face. Yes. And... What was the other th – oh, and he had red glowing eyes. Yeah. Which the, you know, the red glowing eyes, everything has red glowing eyes, well, including my favorite, yeah. the Mothman. Well, people were clearly freaked out and it affected their lives. The interesting thing about the story is that it starts with the first sighting in, 18, in 1837. Right. Right? Yeah. Then there's a 30-year gap. It's gone. It crops up again in 1877. Are, now, are you sure? Because I thought there were little things that uh, were possibly attributable to him. Nothing significant oh, really okay. happened. There were, th yeah. you know, the, the descriptions were too different for yeah. you to, like, categorically say, you know. And it, So let's just say this. It's 30 years apart. Let's say you're wearing some kind of mechanical apparatus. <laughs> yeah, now okay. you're 30 years older. Right. You're yeah. 30 years older. <laughs> yeah. Are you really jumping nine-foot fences? Yeah. Or I know I'm not. Fences? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Additionally, what what was the state of technology, mechanical technology at this point? Well, it was quite an age of invention and new things, new thinking. You're coming right out of the mechanical industrial revolution. So late 18th century into the early 19th century, what you see here is a lot of new inventions happening and a lot of smart people coming up with stuff. You know, you have the, the, the great Michael Faraday you know, everything from the toy balloon to the, uh, you know, his Wait, his famous Faraday. cage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know Michael Faraday, but I know what the Faraday cage is because yeah. camping in my Jeep, <laughs> I've been concerned about lightning strikes because I have a tent on the yeah. roof. And I was told that the rack on my Jeep might act as a Faraday cage and a lightning strike, which would protect me if I was inside the vehicle. Well, yeah. I mean, so you have a lot of smart people coming up with some monumental inventions around this time. Everything from Samuel Morse and the telegraph and his own Morse code to the first photograph of what of how we know the photograph to be taken using a plate. And that was a Joseph Nesephor. Yeah, you know his name? Yeah. I and, no, but Kyle, he, <laughs> it was Nisiphore Nepke or something. Yeah, that's actually yeah. pretty right. But he was he was working with Jacques Daguerre to come up with a first photographic process where they're printing images onto a plate with chemicals. So there's a lot of innovation going on. Yeah, but this is what's interesting is that some things that you, you would think like that are pretty out there, like uh, 1825, William Sturgeon invented the electromagnet. 
that's a pretty big deal. On the other hand, in 1823, Charles Mackintosh of Scotland comes up with a way to make a raincoat. And he does this by taking some other elements like naphtha, a petroleum distillate, and he's able to dissolve that with rubber. And then he's able to paint that onto kind of a duck canvas cloth so that you can wear it. It keeps out rain. Now, I'm, there's an important point here because Spring Hill Jack, some of the sightings, people said he was wearing a tight-fitting white oil skin, which is kind of like the only thing that was kind of a waterproof cloth that they had before that. So you have oil skin, you have the first raincoat or something of that material. So you don't have a lot of different varying kind of far-out materials yet. Right. So we're, we're not in a full-blown steampunk kind of situation. Well, ste- that's a thing. Steampunk yeah. borrows a lot on anachronisms right. to make it cool. And right. I, I like the idea. It's kind of cool looking. I love the new Sherlock Holmes movies. Yeah. However, there are a lot of anachronisms in that to further the story. And that's what steampunk borrows on. So, you know, uh, the modern match had just been invented, like what we think of as the modern match. Okay. So, so tell me this then. Do you believe, I'm trying to sound like I don't already know, because we have some videos <laughs> on our website of people wearing springboard legs. But do you believe at that time that someone might have successfully invented a mechanical apparatus that would allow them to jump up to nine feet in the air with ease? Probably not. It's too early at this point. Heck, it's too early now. As you'll see from the links we provided and where people are using gas-charged pistons and good mechanical engineering to jump high, it's a little bit outside the reach of what people had reported seeing. In the most advanced video that we found on the internet, there's a guy, he jumps up, he lands in the back of a pickup truck. Or I think he actually clears the whole pickup. Bed. Yeah, he's it's able to good. jump over it. I wouldn't say he's going nine feet, though. I mean, nine feet is a long way up. I'd say he's yeah. probably going about five or six feet up. In the yeah, air. I would say six feet. He, you could clear most autos and you have some momentum. However, that's not what people saw. Because if you look at the guy on there, he's got, you know, probably spring carbon plates that, he, that you've seen runners now uh, who are missing uh, lower limbs able to run on these things. Blades. That's kind of the... that's. Pardon? Uh, blades, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of the technology. E- even the ones where you're using um, gas-infused pistons that give you a little extra jump, you're not getting that height. No, you're, you're not. not getting that air. No, I'm DARP is probably working on it right now, but they certainly weren't in 1837. So to demonstrate some of the supernatural aspects, Scott, why don't you tell us, like, uh, go down to some of the more famous sightings? Okay. The most famous case is Jane, who was attacked at her front door, and then her sisters had to come to her rescue. Right. And, yeah. yeah, so that was the most famous. And, and in that case, he spat fire. He also spoke to her yeah. in clear English. He spat fire. She said he had a hideous face, and uh, he had the blazing red eyes. And, then he, <laughs> and a helmet, which I love. Yeah, a the helmet. There's a lot of helmets. <laughs> There's, well, no, this guy got an outfit together. That's kind of cool. Right. Like, you know, early superhero. Right. And but, so, but not so heroic. Exactly. And then, like, a few days later, apparently he turned up again. He jumped out of the bushes in front of a coachman, right? Yeah. He yeah. was uh, – and it caused the – you know, the horses freaked. Uh, he caused him to crash. Yeah. Uh, he suffered a lot of bodily injury. And witnesses saw this, and they saw the guy leap over a nine-foot-tall wall right. and let out a hideous <laughs> laugh. Yes. Oh, yes. Y- there you go. And uh, then you- following that, we have – Oh, uh, the Lucy... Lucy Scales. Yes. Now, this happened, uh, I think, 28th February, 1838. So, not long after. And I think this is also why it cemented this in people's minds of the time. Yeah. Because it happened right after. And that story is basically Lucy and her sister were visiting their brother, who's a butcher, in a, in a nice part of Limehouse. That's and, right. So, now he's right in London. He's in the city. Now he's in the city. Yeah. And they're passing along Green Dragon Alley. And uh, there are similar aspects to this case. 
because they see a guy kind of hanging out in the in the shadow there near near the entrance, and he pops out of the alley. The the two girls are walking kind of in single file, so I believe Lucy is in front of her sister, and the guy just comes up. He's wearing a large cloak. And he also belches a quantity of blue flame, as they okay. say, into her face. Now, people immediately, they're not used to this kind of thing. Look, they, you know, nowadays people would, you, they, if you watched any YouTube videos, the guy popping out of the trash can wearing a Halloween mask gets punched immediately. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's the first thing is respond with immediate violence. Yes. Uh, you know, back then, look, they, they don't know anything about this. It totally freaks them out. And she falls to the ground. She claims the, uh, the fire had blinded her immediately. Is this the woman that's, that's – I think it's my favorite quote in an article was that – the consequence was that the poor girl immediately swooned and has never from that moment been in her senses. But on seeing any man screams out most violently, take him away. <laughs> that's a, that's I, her, right? Yeah, well, that I think that her. was – that happened quite a bit, yeah, quite a bit what back is it? then. It's the, for the rest no, of your the life. swooning. The yeah. swooning and – that's what I'm getting at. The yeah. swooning, the passing out, the, the violent fits that last for hours where it's so bad they become a burden to their family from here on out. You know, they, that was happening with Lord Byron, I think, in the, yeah, in the right. theater. Yeah. But a lot of that's the, the corsets were very tight. So yes. you're passing out from the vapors. Yes. Uh, no, but the point is, is that, look, they this is freaking people out. It It's memorable. I'm kind of coming to the point where, look, if it was just some weirdo guy playing a prank and he shows up in a Halloween mask, says boo, maybe, maybe even lights something on fire, runs away or scratches people with claws... That's a lot more terrestrial kind of mischief. Now, you know, the one aspects of these stories is that the way he evades capture and even bullets sometimes. There was one whole theory that it was a group of men who were pranksters and, and fairly well off and could afford to travel, which at the time was very expensive and, and a pain. And they had made a bet over uh, – some bet to 5,000 pounds were at stake over the success or failure of their, quote, abominable proceedings, which was to scare people all over the place and to perpetrate this myth. And one of the things that's interesting about that was there was an actual particular suspect, a guy named Henry de la Poor Beresford, the Marquis of Waterford. <laughs> and you know what I'm going to Look say. at this guy's painting, by the way. He looks like <laughs> he, a troublemaker. He, we, he, well, you know what I was going to say is that I think we all know somebody like this. And if you read the description of what he would do – there's somebody that Scott and I both know that has worked in the field, you know, fun guy. He's a good friend, but you cannot bet him anything because he will do it. Yes. And it doesn't matter. I'm seriously, it doesn't matter what it is. Yeah, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. And that's it. Again, I had a phase like this in college myself, but um, I did <laughs> well, some stuff. that'll be so, another show. Yeah, so stupid. <laughs> I won't even share it. But yeah, so this guy, you know, it's him and his friends and they're just trying to perpetrate this myth and, you know, that I guess in theory that could work. Then he could be in multiple places at once if it's more than one person. And yeah, it, okay. So a few months after the first sightings, the mayor of London, the Lord Mayor Sir John Cowan, yes. received some letters, and uh, I believe somebody anonymously kind of coped to it, saying that they they weren't condoning it, but they were saying that yeah, this is kind of a bet between some uh, people of high life station, yes, that were pulling these pranks, and part of the wager they had to appear as a ghost, a bear and a devil, right. and uh, they didn't want anybody really upsetting anybody, but they had to do these things, and what happened basically is, like, people were not handling this very well. <laughs> yeah, you know. and then the sightings started happening all over the place. There was an eyewitness who was, I guess, on his way home from Brixton Hill. He had one of my favorite quotes. He, he actually was pretty calm. Yeah. He was like, at first I was surprised, <laughs> and then he said, this is my favorite quote, being now over 40, it was useless thinking of pursuit. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
kind of how I think too. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's I'm like, not. You I'm know what? Look, I have trouble. You know, uh, get out of here. Yeah. No. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can I go home, please? Yeah, there's a hot meal waiting for me, or I could, you know, try and chase you down. Yeah. But that was never successful anyway. Um, no, and we we shouldn't go too much further without mentioning in 1877, which is a full 30 years after the first sighting, right? Which we yeah. t- we mentioned earlier. That was at the barracks at Aldershot. Ah, yes, the Aldershot barracks, which uh, had 10,000 troops. Yeah, British it's troops. considered the home of the British Army. Yes, so it's about 30 miles south. East of London, I believe. Now we're talking like it's a that's pretty. You know, it, it's one thing scaring young women. Yes, you know who are who are not used to that kind of thing and are going to swoon and faint and have fits. Now you're talking about guys with guns and also be a burden to their families the rest of their lives. Yeah, apparently. well, hey, if you watch any masterpiece theater, that's <laughs> that can happen. So at Aldershot, you describe this best. I find this hilarious. Well, explain <laughs> what happened. Because I mean, the, the long and short right, of briefly, it, it's there's a there's a bit of a, a Bugs Bunny element to it, in <laughs> <laughs> one of the actions that happened. Okay, the one story is that one of the sentries guarding the barracks uh, sees a guy kind of like lurking out of the shadows, and of course he's like, you know, Holt, who goes there? You know, gives him the challenge, no word. Suddenly the guy's upon him, like right up next to him, gives him a couple of slaps. <laughs> The, which is like, it's insulting. You know, the guy's got a gun. Apparently the guy's like, well, I'll do that, and, you know, shoots at him. Now, now, the different reports that I'd heard is that one guy claimed that he shot him center mass. Yeah, I did not find that. Okay, but, well, but then they're saying, well, me. maybe he had blanks. And it's like, no, these guys, look, these are real guards. This is not like the, the touristy stuff at, uh, you know, Buckingham Palace. Those guys actually have guns too. But like, yes. no, this guy is like, that's not cool. And uh, But the guy, he leapt, he bounded away. Yes, and there, he's never been wounded. There's never been blood. And by the way, I want to go back to the coachman again yeah. that wrecked the coach sure. and multiple witnesses. Let me just say, what's the first thing you need to do when you crash the company car? <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't think he's any kid. Well, he's going to call 911. No, I mean, you've got to have your story straight. You're responsible. Yeah. You know, yeah. right? How convenient is it? A devil jumped out of the bushes, you know, yeah. and then the passengers are, it's like Eddie Murphy when he did that routine. And everybody neck hurt, you know, after the <laughs> car crash, because all he's got to do is be like, I'm going to lose my job. You know, <laughs> everybody say they saw the Spring Hill yeah. Jack. I'm just saying there's lots of different. Well, there's other people that saw it, too, because I think those are the folks that reported that he leapt over this nine foot tall wall. Okay, so they witnessed the coach crashing. I believe, yeah, that's okay, from So it's from not just a guy I, in the woods and no. like ran into a tree no, or apparently his he's, horse is freaked out. And yeah, he was apparently like, he's pretty messed up okay. because, look, there's no seat belts. Imagine that. So yes. you're, you're going, you know, if, if it's a full trot there, you could be going 20 miles an hour. Right, right. And bang, you crash, no seat belts. So he was pretty hurt. That was the thing, though, is that people, uh, they heard the laugh. They saw him leap over the fence. They were like, no way. That's impossible. But that's one of the other aspects of this is that if it were a drunken nobleman, he's, he's having a laugh, as they say. He comes out, lets out a devilish shriek or yeah. cry. Yeah. They've seen plenty of that. You know, what I'm saying? Like, that's not so fantastical. But it's always these ele- elements that give this story legs, as we say. Well, oh, yeah. yeah springy, you know, springy legs. Springy legs. But <laughs> you don't want to get that, Scott. Yeah. Is like there's an element of the story that like makes it uncommon. Yes. Which people remember because it was like, you, you see a guy dancing around on the top of the church and suddenly he's crawling, he's walking down the walls. Yes. Yeah. That's different. Look, well, drunk, drunk guy on top of a building, I've seen that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, yeah. You know, I haven't and, been that. And I'm sorry about yet. that time. I, mean, <laughs> I no, told but, you not to tell anybody. But, <laughs> no, yeah. but I mean, getting back to like the final, let's get to the final viewing. And then I yes. want to just briefly talk about, 
United States. Aside oh, yeah, from yeah, the please, US. please. Oh, um, there was oh, there was one other slapping incident. That, oh, <laughs> was yeah, a, that, that was a. That was a this is what I love the slap. This comes is what, out of the darkness it's, and it slapped me. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's comical. And you know, I'm glad he's not really hurting people, but you know, it's it is kind of a funny thing because well, the other thing is it's horrible. You know, yes, he's terrorizing young women. Yes. And that's not cool. Yeah, not to take lightly. In 1986, a uh, a man he was he was on the road, and same kind of thing. He was bounding. 1986. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh. that's what I'm saying. He's like th- this spans. Wait, is that in the U.S. or this is overseas? This is in. Uh, now we're still in Britain. Oh, yeah. Okay. So in, in South Hertfordshire, uh, not far from the Welsh border. There. So it was a, a traveling salesman. He. Uh, sees this thing bounding in enormous leaps. Okay, so that gets his attention. Well, this thing kind of comes up to him, slaps his cheek, <laughs> and, uh, and and bounds off. But the guy described him, all black ski suit, you know, so there he goes. But a really elongated chin. Now, this will get to another thing that we see as far as, like, fantastical creatures and beings that people currently today are seeing. Yeah. 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 And, oh, and before I forget, this is pretty recent. People have reported seeing Black Panthers in the London subways. Oh, right. Okay. So okay. then uh, then that opens up to mass hysteria, other little aspects. Uh, but anyway, get, to get back well, to we, the Well, we overlooked one case. There was a sighting in 1845 in London. There was a prostitute named uh, Maria, I believe, who was yeah. apparently – she was attacked. And supposedly he breathed fire in her face and then picked her up and threw her into a like, muddy ditch where right. she did not recover and drown. Yes. Now – I'm going to come back to this in a little bit, but my my thing about this is that it, if she was alone, because I don't ever hear any mention of witnesses, who was around to tell this story about he breathed fire into her face and threw her in a ditch and she's dead, so she can't tell that story. Yeah. But there's no witnesses when you read the story. The story is fishy, all right? And I'm going to come back to that. Before I do that, the, the case that is traditionally considered – the last case, even though mm-hmm. we just talked about 1986. And uh, apparently he went to Provincetown. Who knew? <laughs> I don't know if you know about Provincetown. but no, well, have, uh, Do you know? Uh, yes, I've been there. Okay. I love it. It is beautiful. I had a good time there. And it's interesting to me that Spring Hill Jack went to Provincetown. Traditionally, what's considered to be the final sort of sighting of the guy that started out in 1837. The, the turn of the, the century, uh, the, yeah, the turn yeah. of the 19th century uh, era. Yeah. This was in 1904 in Liverpool. Okay. Now, what was happening, there was already apparently some big poltergeist incident going on. So like you said about about the pot boiling, and those are yeah. the circumstances. It's kind of like Ghostbusters 2 is a god-awful <laughs> movie. But, you know, the things are coming to a head. Yes. Right? And so people were predisposed to like – you could see how in a pub somebody might be like, oh, it's the Spring Hill Jack. He's back. You know, we, the, people were talking about a guy jumping on roofs and – This is also during the, uh, the spiritualist movement uh, era. Right. So explain the spiritualist movement. Well, very generally, the spiritualism and the spiritualist movement is kind of a, a change in thinking in that there is an afterlife. There is a, there is a spirit world that people can readily access and communicate. So it, you know, it, to my view, in a way, it's a little bit of entertainment as well. Look, they didn't have the, the TV and the internet, and that's the cause for a lot of these uh, antics. Certainly my relatives in, in, in days gone by used to play a lot of pranks on each other as entertainment. Uh, but sp- generally speaking with this, here you have kind of a loosening of the rules that you know were generally set down by the church historically. Like they didn't want you dabbling in this stuff, but you know you have a loosening of these kind of things. So here you have an organized kind of a religious way of thinking about the afterlife and and even reincarnation and things like that. So you have people going to mediums, 
doing a lot of seances, using the Ouija board. So basically, yeah, it's people are kind of experimenting with this now. And, and it was all happening kind of in this era, the early 19th century to, to, the, to the late 19th century. Okay. So that, yeah. that explains, explains a frame of mind. Well, yes. and, and this is the thing. With this 1904 Liverpool sighting, lots of people saw a man on a roof. And all the stories were recorded that this was Spring Hill Jack. Well, turns out Mr. Dash dug up an interview with a woman who lived in the area and was there. She was a child at the time, 60 years later. Wow. And she said there was a man in town who was crazy. And, here, and I'll quote, A local man slightly off balance mentally. He had a form of religious mania, and he would climb on the rooftops of houses crying out, My wife is the devil! They usually fetched a police or a fire engine ladder to get him down. As the police closed in on him, he would leap from one house roof to the next. That's what gave rise to the Spring Hill Jack rumors in Liverpool. Okay. Th- yes, I totally believe that, that that's possible. But if you see somebody leaping 30 feet across a span, at some point, n- now you're in the Matrix territory. Like, that's impossible. You know? Yes, but no one is saying that. No one is saying that. Maybe you want to hear that. As a, no, I don't. As some, no, I'm not yeah, saying you yeah, yeah, specifically. Right. <laughs> a person wants to hear it was yeah. across the biggest. Or, or you know. they don't know. That's the thing is that people, uh, when something like that happens, your mind starts to race. That's why eyewitness testimony is a lot of times unreliable. People, uh, they don't remember clearly what they saw or they're, or they're filling in the gaps with things that aren't really possible or accurate. Okay, so that sort of wraps up the big picture with him overseas, or for us overseas. Yeah, the, oh. kind of the historical timeline. But he did apparently leap across the pond a few <laughs> in times. One, yeah, yeah and, 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 and just a few uh, leaps, though. Yeah, and a few leaps. Uh, one of the earlier ones was in Georgia. Now, oh. I'm just going to tell you, if you come to Georgia, even in, apparently this was 1841, and you start running around in a suit... Things are not going to go well. <laughs> you're going like, to get scared. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This guy apparently dressed as Satan tried to rob a woman when he was stopped yeah. by somebody. And he, he told the guy, I am the prince of darkness. And apparently he commenced swelling, in quotes, emitting smoke <laughs> and at the same time burning sulfur. Ah, The guy shot him. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I'm saying. That, shot well, him dead. Yeah, no, I definitely believe that there are going to be... Of course, copycats and people, you know, look, we have people perpetrating Bigfoot hoaxes with yes. the baggy legs and the bad costumes and throwing the guts on there. And, uh, you know, and they're, they're getting a thrill out of it. Exactly. And there was another case in Baltimore that happened in the 50s, apparently. And all again, as I mentioned earlier, Provincetown, from 1938 to 44, this is one of the more famous ones in the States. There was this thing seen that they was described as the Black Flash or the oh, Phantom. Yeah. yeah, It was a six to eight foot tall creature with eyes like balls of flame, they said. Oh, of course. Now, it attacked, but apparently didn't want to hurt anyone too bad. A farmer apparently said that he shot it and it laughed at him. And a, and a boy said... <laughs> that's this the, is, that's yeah. the Spring Hill Jack. Yeah. And a boy said, then this is critical, that it spat blue flames in his face. Whoa. Wait a minute. What year was this? This was between 1938 and 1944 in wow. Provincetown, which is a tiny place. Yeah. yeah no. So in 1988, the retired sheriff's came out and he was like yeah there was three guys i know who they were yeah they're all dead now yeah. it was a hoax i'm not going to say their names they've got family here even with the blue flame that was uh, a that that's was... what it, yeah i mean that's that's as much as i've got out of it here okay that's as much as mike dash has as well that's something to maybe dig down on but it was a copycat crime yeah you know, apparently yeah, yeah. with three guys who who must have if it was spitting blue flames and these other stories i mean i don't know it sounds like they were familiar with the original story 
and they if, wanted if to... It, yeah, if it really was three guys doing it, then they created a device by which they could... You know, it's look, it's a cheap magic trick nowadays. Back in the 1830s, that would be a little dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> and, Michael, and... I think Michael Faraday nearly lost his vision when a, you know, compre- a tube of compressed gas he, uh, blew up in his face, but then that's how he kind of got onto uh, cooling well, and that's and you know, and that's kind of the thing. It's like and there's somebody I left out of the story who's very important. Officer, uh, I think it was James Leah or Lee. Yes, uh, yeah. He was, he was. This guy was the best detective in London at the time. He was the one that solved. Uh, I think you mentioned to me the, the Red, Red Barn, Barn murders. Yeah, the Red yeah. Barn murder, and so he was like. This guy was the CSI of the era, and he explored very thoroughly the case. And in some of his research, one, there, there's a lot to read about that in the in the Dash paper. But one of the things that I thought was interesting in terms of breathing the fire was that he was able to get fire breathers, who at the time were called flame eaters or something yeah. like that, to demonstrate how they would do this. Right. And it's pretty much the same technique that we're all familiar with today. And he said, it, you could do this, but there's a couple things about it, including the experts that he worked with during his investigation. One was they said, it is very, very hard to do and very dangerous. Yeah. And you would most certainly not want to do it just randomly out in the night where there are trees or a wind could blow it back onto right. you. It's like you do it in a controlled environment. And it's not something that you can easily learn to do in terms of spitting fire. So yeah. his conclusion – and also he said it doesn't explain how she described the fire as coming from inside of his mouth without any aid apparently. Yeah, he just belched it. Yeah. Uh, another person said it, it came from his chest I believe. Right. So yeah, that's what I'll say is if it's a magic trick, it's a pretty good one for yes. the time, especially for the time. Yes. Uh, even for nowadays, I mean, you can f- play around with flash paper and different things, but to get that color, I think you have to burn cobalt. <laughs> you know, yes. so the, you, know, it, you know, natural gas will burn blue, but how do you get that to happen without killing yourself? Well, that's about it for the Spring Hill Jack. And for me, my verdict is that it's all pretty much explained. I mean, after reading Mike Dash's paper, which is the most thorough thing I have ever seen on it. Yeah. I feel that it's all pretty much explainable. The, the biggest question, honestly, is the leaping for me. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah that's, that's... That was something that was reported often, and it's hard to imagine how you would fake that or why people would make it up. Yeah, that is one interesting element is that most of these stories, I would say, have some kind of explainable causality to them. Even the hideous mask and the helmet and the oil skins and the, even the, maybe the glowing red eyes somehow, or even the belching fire. But the leaping, that is one element that people saw from afar, and it's the consistency. Well, it gives him his name. He's not the red-eyed monster. He's the, you know, he's Spring-Heeled Jack. That's the one element that that defines this character. And you know what? It's got all the elements of an astonishing legend, which is what I like about it. You know, it covers all the bases. But as far as it being possible, it reminds me of one of my favorite sayings about the unexplained. Not all of these stories have to be true. Only one does. That's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. And thanks for coming back. And thanks very much to my friend John Garris for digging up that Mike Dash article. Yes, and thanks to Mike Dash. Oh, yeah, that was quite a piece of work. Join us in two weeks when we'll be back with a new episode. Our theme was composed by Judson Crane and our sound design by Ryan McCullough. Thanks to Jim Creative Design for our logo. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at AstonishingLegends.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Google+. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. <laughs>